One of the really remarkable things about uh, the God of the Bible uh, that we almost don't realise is remarkable because if you've grown up within a Christian family or even just within like Australia, a culture that is so aware of Christianity, you take it for granted that the word God means the one God, the creator God, the God of everything. You take it for granted that there's one God, that one God made everything, that one God is the God of the whole earth, that idea of monotheism. We just assume, and so we're not surprised by it. But it's one of the great things, one of the surprising things about the God of the Scriptures, the God who is there, the Holy One of Israel, is that he's the God of all. He's the creator of all, the God of all, the ruler over all. There's one God over all the nations of the world. He's not just the God of those who believe in him and get meaning from that story. They're just the God of a community or a nation or a people group or a some aspect of nature, you know, the God of the sea or the God of the forests or something. He's the God of the whole world. He's a God who, when you compare him to the many, many gods of, of the Hindus or the, the ancient peoples of Mesopotamia or the Greeks or the Romans, when you compare him to all those many gods, it's almost like those gods become more like angels or demons by comparison. They're spirit beings, but they're of a completely different kind to the Holy One of Israel who is the God overall, the creator overall, the God over all nations. And in order to understand Judaism and Christianity, in order for a Hindu to understand Judaism and Christianity or an ancient Mesopotamian from, uh, or from Egypt or Babylon or, or Syria or Tyre, uh, to understand uh, Judaism or for a modern Hindu or a, or a modern atheist or secular Australian who's a little bit spiritual but not religious, for them to understand Christianity... You have to understand this, that God is the God of all the nations. The creator of everything is the God of believers and unbelievers, whether they realise it or not. He's the God of all the kingdoms, all the empires, all the republics, all the businesses and corporations and careers and friendship groups and faculties. He's the God of you. The God of me. If Christianity is true, if Judaism is true, it's true for all. The central vision of Isaiah, one of the central themes from beginning to end, 1 through to 66, and perhaps you've picked it up already during the semester, is the vision of God. Remember Isaiah seeing God, the Lord, back in chapter 6? I saw the Lord high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. From beginning to end, that vision of the greatness of the Holy One of Israel, his majesty, his power, his universal reign and therefore his universal judgment and his universal salvation. This great book, Isaiah, one of the major writing prophets, um, the most quoted of the writing prophets in the New Testament, one of the great, most quoted books of the Old Testament in the New Testament, this book of prophecies, this book of theology, this book of promises of the gospel to come. Here we see this universal rule of the Lord over all the nations of the world to judge and to save. You can't have Christianity without understanding this. And if Christianity is true, it's true for all, as this implies. To put this little section in context, chapters 13 to 23, um, you might remember those of you who were here for the breakfast when we looked at uh, Isaiah seeing the Lord and then all that stuff about 
uh, the virgin being with child and giving birth to Emmanuel and the, the curds and honey and all that stuff in chapters 6 to 8. That's kind of coming after that section. And that section, after it finishes, turns into, in chapter 9, 10, 11 and 12, a promise of the future, of the coming son who will be born, who will be the mighty God, everlasting counsellor, prince of peace, who in chapter 11 will be um, a, root, a shoot from the stump of Jesse. The spirit of the Lord will rest on this coming Messiah who will rule things in peace and justice in a new creation. And the end of that whole section is in chapter 12, a song of praise that God will be praised among all the nations of the world. So looking ahead to the future, say verse 4 of chapter 12, give thanks to the Lord, call on his name, make known among the nations what he has done and proclaim his name is exalted. And so that section that begins with Isaiah seeing the Lord lifted up, goes through all the dramas of King Ahaz and Assyria and and the surrounding nations, and ends in these prophecies of a Messiah to come who will rule the world, that therefore all nations should be called to praise. We go from that vision then to Isaiah turning to speak to all the nations, addressing the nations. Now, it's hard to know, but I suspect probably not the case that Isaiah wrote postcards and sent them to all those nations, or literally sent envoys. It's something of a literary device of... Isaiah speaking to Israel about the nations, but the way he speaks about them is telling them what God would say to them. It's, it's that, that's the kind of the device of saying, here is what God declares will be the case for the nations. It is, I think, the, the main emphasis of it. Although we don't know, maybe postcards were sent. Certainly there was um, porous borders between the nations and contacts, so they would have, just as... In the time of the Exodus, they knew and trembled at the news about how the Lord had laid Pharaoh low in the Exodus. So potentially words spread likewise about uh, the Lord and his ways and his warnings for the nations. But the point of this, all this stuff, you, you, just, you get bogged in the details of the poetry. It's okay, like reading any poetry, to be carried along with it. You know, if you read your... I don't know, does anyone read poetry here? Any fans of poetry? Oh, a few do. What's, what poets do you like? I'll put you on the spot, sorry. What poets do you like, Sarah? Bingo Shakespeare. Shakespeare. Now, you don't necessarily understand every... What's a nonce? Who knows? But it doesn't matter. You can kind of go with the flow of Shakespeare and you get the idea, don't you? What was another hand up? Was there, yeah. What poems do you like? One of the Australian classic ones. I can't remember his name. But... Like Les Murray or Banjo Patterson or someone like this? Uh, not quite. Who knows, yeah. But, but with poetry, when you read any other poetry, you don't have to, unless you're in English class writing an essay, you don't have to analyse every line. It's the impact, it's the effect, it's the flow. There might be bits you never fully get. It's like with songs where for years and years you misunderstood a lyric. It made sense what you thought it was. But it turns out you were totally wrong. There's, I don't know if you guys know the old um, band Pearl Jam, but they've got a song that uh, the chorus goes, Don't go on now. But if you listen to the song, it sounds totally like they're singing Dunker Wombat. <laughs> that one doesn't make sense. Um, um, but in the same way, it's okay to read the Bible. When it presents to you as poetry, it's okay to read according to its genre and let the flow of it have an impact upon you, rather than necessarily going, oh, I don't know what Zoan is and Sharon and, and, and all these things, I'm lost. Let the impact, and, and the impact here is to say, each of these nations, one after another after another, and then he comes back and addresses them again, one after another after another, is the overwhelming sense that God is the God of them all, that they, before his judgment, 
are vulnerable or fragile or exposed, a warning of judgment and these promises, like we saw in chapter 19, of hope. And get, the, get that larger impression. You can then zoom in and pick up the details and study deeper. Um, but it's okay as well to read and get that larger impression. Just like the start of the book of Numbers or the book of Chronicles. It's okay to go, wow, a lot of names. <laughs> it's okay to, to grasp it on that larger level. There are ten oracles, uh, burdens, messages here. Um, uh, across 13 to 23, but, um, or actually 13 to 27, rather. Uh, but as is often the case in Isaiah, the, it circles around, the themes loop. And in a way, you can see chapters 13 right through to 27 as three loops. There are five oracles in chapters 13 <coughs> to 20. Like you can see them in your Bibles, there's headings given for us, aren't there? Like a prophecy against Babylon and so forth. And then, oh, hang on, there are ten oracles just in 13 to 23 because there are five oracles from 21 to 23. So five in 13 to 20, and then it loops around for a second loop in 21 to 23. And then there are this huge big visions in 24, 25, 26, 27 that we looked at at our citywide gathering. And as these go on, particularly in that last section, it kind of moves away from being a focus on particular nations, particular geography, particular kings and rulers and, and history, and it becomes what you could call apocalyptic. Gets closer to the land of Zechariah and Ezekiel and the revelation at the end of the New Testament. Gets closer to that. In fact, some people have called that last loop, 24 to 27, the apocalypse of Isaiah, the Isianic apocalypse. It's okay in a sense, like I've said, if you don't have a degree in ancient Near Eastern history and geography and dynasties and empires and so on, you don't need a whole heap of additional extra biblical material to get a sense of what these chapters are about. It can give you a little bit of extra input, but it's not necessary. Um, because what we have here, what God has spoken to us here, still gives us the key impression, the, the key principles, the key ideas uh, that we can grasp. So we're going to slam through these 10 oracles, 13 to 23. Um, I won't see and feel all the details, but get the, the vibe, the overview. First then, Babylon. The fall of the kingdom of Babylon, depicted here as, as almost like an end of the world, in, in dramatic, universalistic terms. The historical becomes a picture of the universal, and in one day, the global. Look at 13 verse 9. See the day the Lord is coming, a cruel day with wrath and fierce anger to make the land desolate and destroy the sinners within it. The stars of heavens and their constellations will not show their light. Uh, the rising sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. I'll punish the world for its evil, the wicked for their sins. I'll put an end to the arrogance of the haughty and the humble and will humble the pride of the ruthless. I'll make man scarcer than pure gold, more rare than the gold of Ophir. Therefore, I'll make the heavens tremble. And the earth will shake from its place at the wrath of the Lord Almighty in the day of his burning anger. This is talking about the downfall of a particular kingdom, Babylon. Um, and uh, it's using this enormous, again, apocalyptic sort of universalistic melodramatic destruction of total disruption. destruction. It helps us realise that, you know, when we read in, in the book of Acts about the day of Pentecost, that Peter says, hey, the giving of the Spirit here fulfils the prophet Joel, that... 
I'll pour out my spirit in those days and the sun will be darkened and so on. It helps us realize it's a way the Bible will talk. A big deal event can be described as a day of darkening suns and bloodied moons. But the prophets don't necessarily always mean all of those cosmic events will be literally taking place. It's the, it's the melodramatic way of saying it's as if the end of the world had come. It's a, if you like, a, a little sliver of, a little taste of the final end of the world. So this fall of Babylon uh, in history is a taste of the final fall of the world Babylon at the end of time. Total destruction is prophesied for Babylon. Damned to spiritual uh, to their spiritual fate. Verse 19, Babylon, the jewel of the kingdoms, the glory of the Babylonian pride will be overthrown by God like Sodom and Gomorrah. She'll never be inhabited or lived in all generations. No Arab will pitch his tent there, no shepherd will rest his flock there, but the desert creatures will lie there. Jackals will fill her houses. The owls will dwell and there'll be wild goats to leap about. Hyenas will howl in her strongholds and jackals in her luxurious places. Her time is at hand. Her days will not be prolonged. God is aware of Babylon's uh, downfall and God is also speaking of his plans for Israel, his promises for her. Verse 1 of chapter 14, the Lord will have compassion on Jacob. Once again, he'll choose Israel and he'll settle them in their own land. Aliens will join with Israel, that is foreigners. So other nations will come and join and unite with the house of Jacob. Perhaps even some from Babylon will join and unite with the house of Jacob, a nation uh, will take them and bring them to their own place and the house of Israel possess the nations. And then we get this taunting of Babylon in the underworld now. This once great empire, fallen low, is mocked from the grave. Verse 9. The grave below is astir to meet you at your coming, Babylon. It rouses the spirits of the departed <coughs> to greet you. All those who are leaders in the world, it makes them rise from their thrones. All those who are kings over the nations, they'll respond, they'll say to you, You've become as weak as we are. You've become like us. All your pomp has been brought down to the grave along with the noises of your harps. Maggots are spread out beneath you and worms cover you. The taunting of the underworld. These nations seem so mighty and yet in the end they become rulers of worms. They become uh, a kingdom of rot. It exposes human pride. And so we get that famous section in chapters 12, uh, verses 12 and following that describe Babylon like a falling star from heaven, evoking perhaps what some think might be the fall of Satan himself. How you've fallen from heaven, referring to the king of Babylon, O morning star, son of the dawn, you've been cast down to the earth. You who once laid low the nations, you said in your heart, I'll ascend to heaven, I'll raise my throne above the stars of God, I'll sit embodied on the mount assembly on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain, I'll ascend above the tops of the clouds and make myself like the most high. But you, King of Babylon, are brought down to the grave, to the depths of the pit. Those who see you stare at you, they ponder your fate. Is this the man who shook the earth and made kingdoms tremble? The man who made the world a desert, who overthrew its cities and wouldn't let its captives go home? Now come to nothing, come to ruin. And to confirm, confirm this catastrophic event that's a long way into the future... Isaiah finishes by speaking in chapters uh, 14, verse 24 and 25 of the downfall of Assyria. That is sooner and closer to hand, verse 24 and 25. The Lord Almighty has sworn, as surely as I have planned, so it will be. As I have purposed, so it will stand. I'll crush the Assyrian in my land. On my mountains, I'll trample him down. In all, 
The Lord God is sovereign over everything. Verse 26, this is the plan determined for the whole world. This hand stretched out over all nations. For the Lord Almighty has purposed who can thwart him. His hand is stretched out, who can turn it back? Babylon. Next, Philistia. The warning to Philistia is that there is a future for the kingdom of Israel, the city of Zion, the dynasty of King David. Prophecy against the Philistines. This is the oracle, verse 28, that came in the, uh, in the year King Ahaz died. Do not rejoice, all you Philistines, that the rod that struck you is broken. From the root of that snake will spring up a viper. Its fruit will be a darting venomous serpent. The poorest of the poor will find pasture. The needy will lie down in safety, but your root I will destroy and it will slay your survivors. The rod is the dynasty of King David. Although humbled and weak and bowed under Assyria, that rule will not last. That suffering will not go on forever. Verse 32. What answer shall be given to the envoys of the nations? The Lord has established Zion. And in her, his afflicted people will find refuge. His message to the nations is that God's purposes will stand. And his purposes for King David, for the Messiah, for the Christ will come to pass. Again, in everything, God's sovereignty, God rules over everything. And he's ruling over everything with his saving plans for his chosen people and his plans of mercy for the world. <coughs> Moab, thirdly. This is a touching prophecy in chapter 15 because it shows God's compassion even in the midst of judgment. There's weeping and mourning here. God's compassion, even though God judges, it's not like God's natural state is wrath and mm. judgment and so on. God's a God of love and mercy and justice and peace. That's his created intention. Justice is the, the necessary result. Uh, judgment is the necessary result of God's truth and justice. But God would much prefer to rule in truth and justice by bringing blessing and goodness to a good world where truth and justice reign. In a sinful world, truth and justice manifest in judgment, condemnation and wrath. But there is something tragic about it. You know, like in Jesus when he comes to Jerusalem that final time in Matthew's Gospel and weeps over the city. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. It's a worry when people rightly preach the judgment of God a little bit too delightfully, getting a bit too much glee out of it. It's a worry. There is a tear in the eye. For just as Moab lament and grieve over judgment, verses 2 to 4, Dibon goes up to its temple, to its place to weep. Moab wails over Nebo and, and, and Medeba. Every head is shaved, every beard is cut off. In the streets they wear sackcloth on the roofs and the public squares. They wail, prostrate with weeping, and so on. So God himself mourns over them, verse 5. My heart cries out over Moab. Her fugitives flee as far as Zoar. They go up the way to Luth, weeping as they go. Or 16 verse 9. 16 verse 9. So I weep as Jazer weeps for the vines of Sidmar, O Heshbon, O Eleelah. I drench you with tears. The shouts of joy over your ripened fruit and over your harvests have been stilled. The Lord is just, righteous, true, and he calls people to account for their guilt. So 16 verse 6. We've heard of Moab's pride, her overweening pride and conceit, her pride and insolence. But it's not that God is irritable and furious and bad-tempered. 
God is, brings necessary judgment, but is compassionate and is merciful. One uh, theologian who writes on, on this passage, particularly speaking about verses 15, chapter 15, verses 5 to 9, describes it, and I quote, as a long list of what touches the heart of God who weeps as he smites. In this prophecy, God even offers shelter and salvation to Moab. They ask in verses 1 to 4, come, give us shelter. And the Lord offers in verses 4 and 5, let the Moab fugitives stay with you, be their shelter from the destroyer. The oppressor will come to an end and destruction will cease. The aggressor will vanish from the land. In love, a throne will be established. In faithfulness, a man will sit on it, one from the house of David, one who is seeking, uh, uh, who in judging seeks justice and speeds the cause of righteousness. So this Messiah, this king for Israel that God establishes will provide shelter for the fugitives of the nations. Again, this theme in the middle of all this judgment God also brings mercy even to the nations of the world. Fourth, Damascus. In Syria, allied with the northern kingdom of Israel, sometimes called Samaria or Jacob or Ephraim. We don't just have here a judgment on Damascus, but on Israel, the northern kingdom, Ephraim, Jacob. In fact, we even get the the southern kingdom swept up in this as well. 17 verse 1. An oracle concerning Damascus. See, Damascus will no longer be a city, but will become a heap of ruins. The cities of Aroah will be deserted and left to flocks, which will will lie down with no one to make them afraid. The fortified city will disappear from Ephraim, the royal power from Damascus. The remnant of Aram will be like the glory of the Israelites, declares the Lord Almighty. In that day, the glory of Jacob, that is the northern kingdom, will fade. The fat of his body will waste away. It'll be as when a reaper gathers the standing grain and harvests the grain with his arm and when a man gleans a head of grain in the valley of Rephaim. The Lord will judge all the earth. Yes, the Lord will provide salvation through his people. Yes, but he will also hold his people, his own people, his chosen people, Israel and Judah, accountable for their guilt. There is no favoritism with God. And so verse 10 says, You have forgotten God, your Saviour. You have not remembered the rock of your fortress. Therefore, though you set out the finest plants and imported vines, though on the day you set them out, you make them grow. On the morning when you plant them, you will bring them to bud. Yet the harvest will be as nothing in the day of disease and incurable pain. The prophecy ends again, reinforcing the Holy One of Israel, the Lord Almighty, is the Lord of all the earth and the Saviour of all the earth. Come over to chapter 18, verse 3. All you people of the world, you who live on the earth, when a banner is raised on the mountains, you'll see it. When a trumpet sounds, you'll hear it. Verse 7. At that time, well, it's not 18 verses 3 and 7. Maybe it should be 17 verse. I don't know what's wrong there. I'm sorry, though. I don't know what those verses are meant to be. <laughs> Egypt. Fifth, Egypt. Oh, maybe it's 23 and 27. Could that be it? That would make sense, wouldn't it? Let's see, that works. Let's try that one. 17 verse 23. No, there isn't a 23. (laughs) What do my notes mean? Anyway, something. Trust me, God is the Lord. (laughs) Egypt. Egypt, number five. All through judgment and salvation. Exactly the same stuff here with Egypt. Here, one of the most exciting prophecies of all of Isaiah is found, actually, which we read just before, at the beginning of our time. There's judgment on Egypt given in 19, verses 1 to 17. 
And then again in chapter 20, verses 1 to 6, judgment on Egypt. In other words, there's no point trusting in Egypt, which was the message of chapters 28 to 35. But then this amazing prophecy. It's really interesting the way this, uh, in the middle of the book of Isaiah, we get this lesser known prophecy, but it's astonishing. Verse 18 of chapter 19. 19 verse 18. In that day, five cities in Egypt will speak the language of Canaan. That is the promised land, the land of Israel. So now Egypt is speaking the language of Israel. And they'll swear allegiance to the Lord Almighty. And verse 19, in that day there'll be an altar to the Lord in the heart of Egypt, in a monument to the Lord at its border. It'll be a sign and witness to the Lord Almighty in the land of Egypt. When they cry out to the Lord because of their oppressors, he will send them a savior and a defender. He'll rescue them. The Lord will make himself known to them. And he goes on to say, they'll worship the Lord, they'll trust in the Lord. And in fact, verses 23 to 25, there'll be a highway between Assyria, Egypt, and the promised land. And there'll be worshipping of God in Egypt, Assyria, and the promised land. And the Lord Almighty will bless them and say, Blessed be Egypt, my people, Assyria, my handiwork, and Israel, my inheritance. The Lord is the judge of all the earth, the judge of all the earth, the saviour of all the earth. He'll judge human pride. He urges humble trust in the Lord. He says, trust the Lord, not human nations and their powers. And God will work for the salvation of the world. And so this image of the highways and the altars is, God has a purpose for the whole world. And eventually all the nations of the world can come to know God and trust God and worship God and be treated by God just as Israel is, as his chosen people. It's not that literally there will be highways between Egypt, Assyria and Israel or literally altars in Egypt, Assyria and Israel. But there you get an amazing little um, prophecy of the gospel age. As Jesus says, go make disciples of all nations, teach them to obey everything I command you, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. That's the fulfillment of this symbolic prophecy that now there is the worship of God, the salvation of God in all the nations of the world. It's actually interesting. There's a book, um, I think Andy might even have it on his bookshelf, uh, that was called Salvation to the Ends of the Earth. There it is. It's a good book. Um, Sorry, Andy. Um, so, so this is a, a biblical theology of mission. Biblical theology means going from Genesis through to Revelation and seeing how mission unfolds. And what's interesting about this, this whole book with all the kind of footnotes and all the scripture references and stuff is that the, um, the first version of the book um, didn't even touch on this passage. Um, it just barely touched it in passing it was because it it's such a lesser-known one. Um, and then the next edition of the book um, realised the oversight and <laughs> had several pages on it going, hang on a second, here's this lesser known passage that people may not be aware of but actually it is a little picture of world mission to come of God's salvation coming to the ends of the earth Five oracles in shadow and prophecy come next in 21, 22 and 23 and we'll touch on those briefly with the time remaining I got carried away with the first half so we'll, we'll see how we go with time <laughs> So those first five oracles were Babylon, Philistia, Moab, Damascus and Egypt. Mainly historical. Although as we, as we saw, they often went beyond the historical, didn't they? The Babylonian description became quite uh, cosmic. And this prophecy to, um, to Egypt has these future leaning images. The second five oracles in 21, 22 and 23 are more elusive, more vague and shadowy and abstract 
peering into a darker future. And yet, unless we get lost in the generality, there are always pillars that pull us back into history too. Firstly, there's a prophecy of the desert by the sea, a looming foreboding like whirlwinds sweeping through a south land, 21 verse 1, an invader coming from the desert, from a land of terror. Verse 3, At this my body is racked with pain, pain seize me like those of a woman in labour, I'm staggered by what I hear, I'm bewildered by what I see, my heart falters. There's this foreboding, this chilling. We hear the confidence of Babylon, verse 5, they set the tables, they spread the rugs, they eat, they drink, get up, you officers, oil, the shields. But Isaiah looks and sees the collapse of the great might of Babylon yet again. Verse 9, 21 verse 9. Look, here comes a man in a chariot with a team of horses and he gives back the answer. Babylon has fallen, has fallen. All the images of its gods lie shattered on the ground. Oh, my people, crushed on the threshing floor, I tell you what I've heard from the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel. Proud nation, its false gods come to ruin. Secondly, silence, endless waiting about an indefinite future. Verse 11, an oracle concerning Juvah. Someone calls to me from Sayyid, Watchman, what is left of the night? Watchman, what is left of the night? And the watchman replies, Morning is coming, but, but also night. If you'd ask, then ask and come back yet again. What's coming? What's coming? It's something dark, but who knows? Will God act? How will God act? When will God act? Thirdly, Arabia. And darkness is the theme here. 4, 21 verse 13. Your caravans of dead knights who camp in the thickets of Arabia bring water for the thirsty, all who live in Timar, bring food for the fugitives, they flee from the sword from the drawn sword, from the bent bow, from the heat of battle. Moab, remember, sought shelter in Zion, but then refused it. And now the caravans of the dead knights in Arabia are asked to provide care for the fugitives, but they can be of little help. Verse 16, this is what the Lord says to me. Within a year, as a servant bound by contract will count it, all the pomp of Kedar will come to an end. The survivors of the bowmen, the warriors of the Kedar, will be few. The Lord God Almighty has spoken. The power of Babylon falls, the future of Edom is uncertain, the refugees in Arabia are exposed. But surely Zion is the fortress, Jerusalem will stand firm, won't it? Won't it? In chapter 22, the Lord rebukes the confidence of Jerusalem. Rebukes them for being confident that they will be safe. For judgment on them is certain... But he speaks of the uh, strengthening of the city. It's reservoirs, verse 11. You built a reservoir between the two walls for the water of the old pool, but you didn't look to the one who made it. You have no regard for the one who planned it long ago. The Lord God Almighty called you on that day to weep and to wail, to tear out your hair and put on sackcloth, but see... There is joy and revelry, slaughtering of cattle and killing of sheep, eating of meat and drinking of wine. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. It is a joy, it's a grim joy and confidence in the end. It's a desperate joy and confidence in the end, for judgment is coming. All the pomp and strength of Shebna, who embodies this, 
will fall apart, come to nothing. Beware, verse 17, the Lord is about to take firm hold of you and hurl you away. Speaking to this steward of Israel named Shebna. You mighty man, he'll roll you up tightly like a ball and throw you into a large country and there you'll die. And there your splendid chariots will remain. Your disgrace to your master's house. I'll dispose you from your office. Then you'll be ousted from your position. In its place, though, God does establish a Messiah-like figure in verses 20 to 23, who will be a picture of the Messiah to come. God will prepare for a future. And last of all, Tyre, in verse 23. Grim indeed is this final prophecy of the future. As we began with the fall of a great power in the east, Babylon, so we end with the fall of a great power in the west, Tyre. Just as Babylon fell, so Tyre falls. Verse 13. Look up the land of the Babylonians. This people is now of no account. The Assyrians have made it a place of desert creatures. They raised up their siege towers. They stripped their fortresses and turned it to ruin. So wail, you ships of Tarshish. Your fortresses are destroyed. Empires crumble. Power evaporates. Cultures, civilizations, superstitions, religions, hierarchies. And yet still a glimmer of hope. Some will survive, verse 17 and 18. At the end of 70 years, the Lord will deal with Tyre. She'll return to her hire as a prostitute and ply her trade with all the kingdoms on the face of the earth. Yet her profit and her earnings will be set apart for the Lord. They'll not be stored up or hoarded. Her profits will go to those who live before the Lord for abundant food and fine clothes. A hope that there might be a future joined with the Lord and his people. Stretched out to this future, on the far side of shattered human hope and confidence, far into the future, the Lord Almighty still has a purpose to judge and to save. And so we do right to wait patiently, trusting not in human pride or human nations, but waiting on the Lord who will work for his people to save the world. Massive section. A whole lot of information, I understand that. A whole chunk of chapters, a whole lot of details. But the big picture, the Lord is the God of the whole world to judge. But the Lord is the God of the whole world to save. And that means we need need not fear. But actually, more than that, it means we have confidence to preach the gospel. For God is the God of the whole world. He has a plan of salvation for the whole world. As we've said, in Jesus, he gives that gospel message to go to the ends of the earth. We benefit from that. We share in that. And as weird as it seems to go from the downfall of ancient kingdoms and the speaking of refugees and ships and princes and horses and Babylons, from that comes uh, the Christian vision for world mission. That we go, oh, because God is the God of all the empires, because God is the God of all history, because the God is the God of all peoples. Therefore, this gospel is good for all peoples, for all kingdoms, for all nations, for all languages, for all tongues. For I serve that God. And I know how fearful his judgment is, but how great his mercy is. And so that's why, as the Unity Fellowship, we don't just share in a religion, in a faith, in a spirituality, but we share in a mission. The great privilege, honour, and wonderful opportunity to share in God's purpose for history, which is bringing his message of his rule for salvation and mercy to the ends of the world.
as we wait for his son's return. We'll finish there, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we honour you as the God of all the world, the judge of all the world, the saviour of all the world. Use us each, we pray, and together as the Uni Fellowship and as our churches, as the Christian movement, use us to honour you and to, to serve you and to speak of you, to share the message of your rule, your judgement and your salvation to all the nations, beginning here in Hobart, in Tasmania, in Australia, to the ends of the earth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.